0: Great to be here. After that introduction, I can't wait to hear me. Wow. And uh, it is an honor to be here. And uh, yesterday, Pastor and I and his wife caught up a lot on Tulsa, the churches they attended, friends of mine. And uh, it's great to meet people. It Won't heaven be wonderful? Yes. On top of that, you'll never have to leave each other. We'll be there all the time and find people that somehow we affected in life and you have, to have no idea what all happened in their life. It's great to hear it here on earth, but in heaven, we're gonna see so many that we led to the Lord or else because of some testimony we had, we led to the Lord. And so that's why it's great to be here today to honor the Word of God. I am a teacher of the Word of God. I'm not a preacher, I'm a teacher. And I taught at Rama Bible Training Center for four years and I became a pastor. And I, my wife and I attended Grace from the time it started. So we were there through Phil Johnson, we were there through Dr. Ken Stewart. And uh, seven years into the church history, I took over the church, pastored it for 33 years. And during that time, I told the people from the first Sunday, I said, I'm gonna treat you like Bible school students. I said, I'm gonna teach the word of God to you. And one thing is you'll walk out smarter than when you came in. And so anyway, this is, that's the gift that God has given me. So I just love to take the word of God and take complicated things and make them simple. That's what Jesus did. Why do you think he suddenly switched over to parables in the middle of a sermon? He saw he was over their head. When their eyes started glazing over and rolling back into their head, he said, wait a minute. It's like putting leaven into a loaf of bread. And all the women said, yes, I understand that. He says, it's like throwing a net into the sea. And all the fishermen said, I understand that. He said, it's like throwing a seed in the ground. All the farmers said, yes, I understand that. Jesus loved to take the word of God and make it simple. Ministers like to make it complicated. So you think they're so smart. I used to walk out of church with my friends going, did you get a thing out of that sermon? They'd go, nope. I said, it was just so heavy. It was just, wow. It was just, you know, and they'd all say the same thing. Yes, I think it was, you know, really uh, intriguing and all that, but we couldn't get a thing out of the sermon. We thought somehow that was, that's the way this word of God should be. But if it isn't simple, I don't want it. And I think Jesus preached to the people on the streets and made it so simple that you can't miss it. That's why I have a book called Theology Simplified. I teach this at school at Andrew Womack's Bible College. And this is a class I took eight complicated sounding things like predestination, reconciliation, sanctification, glorification, justification, redemption, propitiation, and election. I read through it fast because your eyes were rolling back in your head too on those words. But those are words with very simple definitions. And again, men make them complicated. God made them simple. I told the pastor before the service, my favorite is propitiation. The Rolling Stones thing about that, can't get no propitiation. The word means satisfaction. And God was not satisfied with every sacrifice. After every sacrifice, he'd go, eh, I'm, I'm temporarily appeased. And he did that for centuries. Then all of a sudden Jesus went to the cross and God went, Okay. Stop all the sacrifices. I have found the eternal sacrifice. I am eternally satisfied with the work of Jesus Christ. That's what propitiation means. And that's in that book. You'll be blessed by it. Uh, Galatians and Hebrews actually are two books that go together. Both deal with the grace of God. One was written to Gentiles. That's Galatians. And one was written to Hebrews. And that is the book of Hebrews. The two books flow together. And that's why there's no introduction to the book of Hebrews. Every book Paul wrote, he says, Paul, the apostle, by the will of God, not by the will of men. But when he, when he came to the book of Hebrews, he didn't put his name there or anything. The reason why was the Hebrews didn't like him. He was, an, he was an enemy of theirs. So one book flowed right into the other one. And that's why at the end of the book of Galatians, it says, you see what a large letter I have written to you. And explains why those two books work together. So that's out there. Why did this happen? I don't care how much you know of the Word of God, there's still surprises that come in your life. Just keep your trust in God. You'll come through it. And the point of it is oftentimes you learn things from the Word. Other times you learn things from circumstances and have to find the Word to stand on. And that's what causes it. So that's out there on the table in one little book out there, my, my, one of my favorite little books, $5. It's called Let God's Will Find You. I often find people 50 years old, 60 years old that still haven't found the will of God. And the reason why is they're still running from meeting to meeting, looking for prophets to prophesy what they're called to. And the only way in the Bible to find the will of God is just start working for him and the will of God will find you. Just get busy serving him. Well, what am I supposed to do? Work in the church. The kids always need help. We need other ushers. We need lots of counselors. You go down the list of things, churches never have enough. You know why? Because the last guy that started back there working with counseling found the will of God and left us. You're next. Just get in there serving people. Throughout the Word of God, they were serving whenever God found them. I mean, they were either working on the threshing floor, they were out working with sheep. And they were out, you know, doing anything. In the New Testament, they were, they were uh, collecting taxes, and and they were, uh, you know, doing other things as far as you know the things of God were concerned. They were working in the church, and then they found the will of God. And pretty soon, God moved them into a ministry, and they took over worldwide things. And so, the, it isn't that complicated. It isn't the Bible school you go to. It isn't the diploma you have hanging on the wall. It's are you doing something? When he comes, will he find you doing? Thank you. For the rousing amen on that one. I love the way we've emphasized the cross this morning because that's what this is on. I'm going to teach you on the cross. Can anybody, I'd like to ask questions. You're a class now, okay? I'm asking questions. What's the number one thing God left us in this earth to do? Preach the gospel. You'd be surprised how many Christians say, well, go to church. You know, love people, all this kind of stuff. Listen, the reason he left you here was to win souls. What's the purpose of being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking with tongues? To win souls. Ye shall receive power after the Holy Spirit's come upon you to be my witnesses. And we get all these other things. Yes, it's important to come to church and praise the Lord. It's important to have praise and worship services. But why? The whole purpose is to go out and win souls. And that's the purpose of why we're here. It's the purpose of why we're left. And even today, when people are talking about revival, they talk about, well, revival's coming and we're gonna hear, you know, the, the God bless us and we'll call all these different things. But the end result is revival is to win souls. Let me ask you this question What's the purpose of the gifts of the Holy Spirit? To win souls. <laughs> Oh, it's to come to church and prophesy over each other. That's part of it, is to lay hands on the Christians in church and get them healed. The main reason why God gave them was, is so that we can win souls. Why do you think the major purpose of, of getting people healed is? To not to get Christians healed, to get sinners healed so they'll receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus went everywhere healing the sick. Why? So they would accept him as Lord and Savior. Healing is a minor miracle compared to getting born again. The angels don't rejoice over one sick person that's healed, but they they do rejoice over one sinner that gets saved because that's eternal. That's eternal. Did you know that Jesus, the main way he won individuals by word of knowledge, he he said to one of his disciples, I saw you sitting under a tree, Nathaniel. He said, you must be the son of God. He said to the woman at the well, he said, you've had five husbands. The one you're living with now is not your husband. She said, you must be a prophet. And she not only accepted the Lord, she ran into town and told all the men in town, come see a man that told me everything I've ever done. imagine those men went, everything? (laughs) Really? Everything? Yes. So they all went out there to see if they could get this guy to shut up, you know, and guess what happened when they came out? They all got saved. Our revival broke out. <clears throat> a little water this morning, thank you. Yeah. Anyway, it's good to be here. But all this began on the cross. Why did Jesus come? The main reason was to save us. And the reason was to empower us to go win souls. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would. You want to hear a joke? Yes. Thank you. I was going to tell it anyway. A young man graduated from Bible school, fresh out of Bible school, looking for his first church, found a small church and took it, 30 people that attended, but he had all these ideas he learned in Bible school. I'm going to do this to get the church to grow, that to get your church to grow. And so after his first Sunday preaching, he decided he was going to visit every person in the church one at a time. So he was going to go house to house, door to door. He went to a couple of doors. And he finally went to a third door and it was a woman in the church. So he rang the doorbell and no one answered. He rang the doorbell again and no one answered. He knocked on the door and no one answered. So he yelled out, and said, this is Pastor Sanso, I came to see you. No response, nothing. So he took his business card and he stuck it in the door. And when he stuck it in the door, he wrote on the back of it, he wrote Proverbs, uh, pardon me, he wrote uh, uh, Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. Can anybody tell me what Revelation 3 20 is? <laughs> Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I'll come and fellowship with him. So he left that in the door and thought for sure he'd hear from her. And all week long, he never heard a thing. Next Sunday, his head usher came up and said, your card was in the, in the, in the offering plate. Said, here it is back. He said, I don't know why your card was in there. So he looked on it. And right under his own verse he had written, she wrote Genesis chapter 3 and verse 10. And it says, can you tell me? Behold, I was in the garden and I heard your voice. I was afraid because I was naked. (laughs) So I hid myself. So anyway, dumb joke, but anyway. (laughs) All right, Luke chapter 23, if you'll turn there. Pastor's deciding whether he wants to have me back or not. Luke chapter 23, take a look at verse 34. There are seven sayings that Jesus gave us from the cross, and we're just going to take a look at the first two. The first one is in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they parted his raiments and they cast lots. Isn't it interesting, the first thing that Jesus said on the cross was a prayer? Jesus prayed. You know, what would you do? In fact, look at the first word there in verse 23, then. Then, Jesus said. What does this mean? Then, well, then after he had been crucified, then after 33 years, Satan had tried to kill him. People tried to kill him. From the moment he was born, Herod tried to kill him. I mean, through his whole lifetime, they tried to shove him over cliffs, do everything they could. And this was Satan behind it. Because if he could kill him before he went to the cross, that he knew the scripture wouldn't mean anything because the Bible prophesied how Jesus was going to die. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, list how that Jesus would die on a cross, even mention his garments would be parted. And when Jesus was on the cross, then... He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. What would you do after 33 years of Satan trying to kill you? What would you do with people rejecting you? What would you do if all your disciples left you? And finally, one came back when he was on the cross. That was John. His own disciples forsook him. John came back. In fact, because John came back, he turned the keeping of his mother over to John. So here he is on the cross. He said, then... You know, I think by then, I think I'd have had it up to here. I think I'd start telling them off, cursing every one of them. But Jesus didn't. He looked at those that had beat him, tried to kill him. Even the, the guards had tried to kill him. The Roman officers tried to kill him. And so here he was hanging on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And again, we have the power of prayer. Jesus, and we're going to talk about the two that were hanging next to him next, had their hands nailed and their feet nailed. Could you minister if your hands were nailed? Could you minister if your feet were nailed? Think about that. Jesus hanging on the cross showed that my hands can't work anymore, my feet can't work anymore, but you can't stop prayer. Prayer can't be stopped. Prayer knows no boundaries. Prayer knows no time. Prayer doesn't have legs. Prayer doesn't have hands. In fact, prayer can travel faster than you can. It can go around the world. And sadly, what's so sad is as Christians, we often don't learn the power of prayer till We're so old, our hands don't work anymore and our feet don't work anymore. That's when we finally turn to prayer. Jesus started his ministry with prayer, developed his ministry with prayer and ended his ministry with prayer and his hands could still work, his feet could still work all those years, but finally on the cross, all he could rely on was the power of prayer. Think about that. Prayer can go anywhere, and it can go immediately. I mean, if you walk somewhere, it's going to take you the time to walk and come back. But you know what? Prayer can go instantly anywhere around the world. I was in preaching one Sunday morning, and one of my ushers came up and, and grabbed me real quick while I was preaching and said, sorry to interrupt you while you're preaching, but we had a call from our missionary it mentioned what country he was in. He and his wife, and I knew they were pretty far out in the country. There was no, nothing around them. He said his wife is really sick and she's dying right now. He went as far as he could go and finally found one telephone to call and let us know here at the church that we need to pray for her. So I stopped the sermon. The whole congregation had them stand up, and we all agreed in prayer that this man's wife was going to be healed. Guess how quick that prayer went halfway around the world in a split second of time. So I finished the sermon, and by the time I finished the sermon, the usher ran back up and said, I've been waiting on you to finish your sermon. He called back and said and gave me the exact time when she was totally healed. It was the exact time we as a congregation prayed that prayer. Oh, the power of prayer. But you see, we don't think about that till we get old because we think, oh, no, it's my hands that are important. Well, yes, your hands are important. We're supposed to lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. But what about a person that's sick so far away you can't get to them very quickly and they're about to die? Thank God for the power of prayer. Did you know the power of prayer doesn't use your hands? The power of prayer uses the hand of the Lord, the Holy Spirit. In fact, this hand can't heal anybody. It only represents the hand that can and that is the hand of the Lord when I announce people are going to lay hands on people don't look at Bob's hands like they're special I might even have washed them before I came to church honestly, fingernails might be just a little bit dirty, I'm not going to tell you that when I lay hands on you because you might go, ooh, I don't want him to lay hands on me, it's not my hand that heals you, it's Jesus' hand that heals you, what's the main purpose of the laying on of hands? It's to win souls, not just so we can go the rest of our life and not be sick, who cares if you end up in heaven 20 years early It really doesn't matter that much as far as this life is concerned. What matters is what happened through your healing. Did someone receive Jesus? Did your temporary miracle produce an eternal miracle in someone else? This is why the disciples were sent out was to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. And then also that was a thing to win them to the Lord. Listen to me. Honestly, being filled with the Spirit, speaking with tongues, laying hands on the sick, casting out devils is part of the Great Commission. It's not separate from the Great Commission. It is part of the Great Commission. Romans chapter 15. Paul was talking to the Romans and said, "When I came to you, I came to you with mighty signs and wonders." He said, "I preached the gospel of through mighty signs and wonders from Jerusalem, and round about unto a lyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. If signs and wonders don't follow your ministry, you are not fully preaching." The gospel. We have churches today that just wipe that out and say, well, we're supposed to win souls by preaching. Yes, but that's only part of it. The other part is for people that won't listen to preaching. We need something that'll shock them for the moment. And we raise the dead, we cast out devils, and we lay hands on the sick and see them recover. All that is a minor miracle. So the major miracle of the new birth can come into a person's life. That's good preaching, Bob. Thank you so much. I told you I was a teacher, but once in a while, I'll get off into preaching. So Jesus, again, his hands wouldn't work. His feet wouldn't work, but prayer would work. And that's what happened. He prayed. And before he died, let me ask you this. Was that prayer answered? Lord, forgive them. Was that prayer answered? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Absolutely. Jesus didn't see the answer to the prayer, but it came after he died, which tells us something else. Even when you're gone, your prayers keep working. Matthew 27, verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that were done, they feared greatly saying, truly, this was the son of God. They received him as their savior because of the miracles that happened. And because of Jesus' prayer on the cross, he forgave them for what they did. And that's the power of it. Again, sadly, we don't often turn to prayer until we're so old that suddenly our hands aren't that important, our feet aren't that important, and we realized all this time we could have been developing a prayer life, and Jesus did that. There's a story when I was growing up, I received Jesus at five years old at Vacation Bible School. My dad was a pastor, and he had already quit pastoring by that time, and so we were attending a church in Tulsa where my dad got saved. And my mom got saved. And so when I was there, uh, they had vacation Bible school. My sister went, I went, and then a friend of mine named David Shibley went. David Shibley has a very large ministry organization in Dallas today. But all three of us went to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so uh, I was five, my sister was four, and my friend David Shibley was three. He often uses that. Says, "Don't tell me a three-year-old can't get saved." He said, "I've turned the world upside down for Jesus, and it started when I was three years old, and didn't have to go back at five and reaccept Jesus because it didn't work at three years old." So again, he gave his life to the Lord. And I never thought much about it. We went to that church for a few years, and then uh, I got married. You know, later on, my wife and I attended an Assembly of God church entered the charismatic movement. A bunch of things happened. I kind of forgot about that church back there, except that the one that led me to the Lord was the pastor's wife, Sister Webb. She, she knelt with me at the, uh, you know in the front by the altars, and my sister knelt there, and David knelt there that week, and we all accepted Jesus. I hadn't thought much about it until later on, after I'd been married for a number of years, uh, her daughter called me. Sister Webb's daughter called me and said, my mom's dying She's been in a nursing home for some time and an assisted living home. And so anyway, just wanted you to know that. And so anyway, uh, she told me, she said, you don't need to go see her. She's just right now. She's just so old. I mean, she can't hardly even think right. And so again, she said, just want you to know that. And so I said, okay. And so anyway, after she died, the daughter called us back and said, you know what, Bob? I was looking through her drawers in, in her chest of drawers and stuff in the room. We never did look there. And she said, we found a box a big wooden box, and she said, we opened it up and it was filled with little three-by-five cards and all the names of all the children she led to the Lord were on there. And she said, your name's on there. And she said, it was her prayer box because she prayed for those names every single day. And has for 40 years or however long it was at that time, old as I was. And I'll tell you what, I burst into tears to think all those time, I thought it was me. It was her prayers. <laughs> I thought it was Bob, how great he is, and the Holy Spirit. I know it was her. She was behind the scenes back there praying for me all those years for my success. My name was on there. My sister's name was on there. David Shibley's name was on there. And her son's best friend, Phil Driscoll, was on there. He's from Tulsa, too. And his name was on there. And I called Phil later and told him about it. And he started crying, too, because we love that family. And so just the power of that. But we don't often stop to think. And I think heaven's going to be wonderful when we start sharing all the prayers. That you didn't see behind the scenes that went on. We thought all that time it was just we found a, a, the Holy Spirit. We found his will. Somebody was back there praying we'd find his will. All right? Because some of us are too dumb to find his will. Pardon me. I mean, we stumble through life sometimes. It's a wonder we find anything. But thank God for the prayers of people. Did you know Jesus prayed for us? In the garden, he said, Lord, I not only pray for these disciples around me who are all asleep. They were snoring, and he's praying for us. He says, I not only pray for these, but for all those who will accept me later on. And that prayer is still being answered today. Did you know Jesus still is in heaven praying for us? He's making intercession at the right hand of the Father for us to receive Jesus and others to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's still praying that prayer. It's the most important prayer to him that somebody find Jesus. I mean, it was great you got filled with the Spirit, but angels didn't rejoice then. They rejoiced when you accepted Jesus. Because that's the most eternal thing. And being filled with the spirits are only for down here. Getting born again is for up there. Right. We'll be forever up there because of the new birth. Anyway. All right. So let me take it on and go to the next one. What about the second saying? Look at Luke chapter 23 again. While you're there and jump down with me to verse 42 and Verse 43. And here we find these two verses, it says, and he said to Jesus, this is the two thieves that were nailed next to him. One of them turned to him and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. It's no accident that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. God foresaw it and Isaiah prophesied of it. Isaiah said in chapter 53 and verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. And he had two transgressors hanging one on each side of him on a cross just as he was on a cross. And let me say something else. Their hands were nailed. Their feet were nailed. Jesus could not help them with his hands. Jesus could not save them with his feet. He had for 33 years walked in this earth, went places, helped people, raised the dead, got them healed, but he could do nothing on the cross for these two that were there, except for the fact his prayer must have covered them too. And there was two hanging beside him. What if he have said, what if one of them said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he says, listen, if you had just walked down the aisle of a church, are you kidding If you can just find a find an altar and come and bow there, find a pastor and come and give your life to him in front of a pastor, none of that would have worked because why his hands were nailed, his feet were nailed. You know what the crosses scream out, grace, we can't do it, only God can do it. And if our hands don't work, we're still to a point we can get saved. If our feet don't work, we're still at a point we can get saved. All this comes back to the grace of God for those two that were hanging beside him. Not only was the grace of God seen through Jesus, he couldn't get off the cross, but he could still pray for people. And oh, the power of prayer. Still working. Did you know that there were prayers in the Old Testament that are still being worked today? In fact, in the list of the heroes of faith, he said many died not seeing the answer. They died before seeing the answer. And the answer still hasn't come in many cases but it's going to come because you know why? Prayer is eternal. Your hands aren't, your feet aren't, but prayer is eternal. And on the cross, there were two hanging beside Jesus. And this verse says again, one of them said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And again, it's no accident. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. God foresaw it. Isaiah foretold of it. Let me just give you an idea here first about these thieves. These are not the guys that robbed 7-Elevens on the corner. These thieves were criminals, murder incorporated. The thief, in fact, this is what was talked about in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus said there was a man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who beat him, robbed him, stripped him, and left him half dead. They thought he was fully dead, but the good Samaritan found him and recovered him later, this is the one. In fact, these men were so evil that they waited on the sides of roads for for people to walk by, and they would beat them up and kill them just to get their possessions. And this became so popular that Rome decided they are going to start crucifying these people. Again, these were not the guys that rob a small store on the corner. These are people that actually murdered people. So these two that were hanging on the cross were not just people that, you know, robbed a store or something. They were murderers. And that's why they were on the cross. And this is they were hanging next to Jesus. So again, why was Jesus crucified between two thieves? I want you to think about that for just a moment. Why was Jesus crucified between two thieves, murderers? Because the thieves represent us, all mankind. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They weren't there because they were nice guys that got caught. These guys were evil. These guys had killed people, murdered people. Probably didn't start out that way. Because there were two men that were hanging there, I kind of think as I look back on I'm gonna, I'll qualify this in just a minute. I think these two guys probably grew up with each other, got into crime together. Probably started out just stealing small things and found that, hey, it's a whole lot easier to steal than it is to go to work. And look, you get money. And then some people caught them, and so they killed them. And they begin to actually, after a while, begin to you know, get desensitized to killing and then they joined a big group that was making major halls. And so they joined them and became part of, again, of, of gangs. They became a part of organized crime. And then one day they were caught. In fact, my idea is they were caught at the same time. I'll qualify this. They were caught at the same time. I think probably the whole gang was involved and the others got away and they were caught. And they were brought in. Think about this. To be crucified together, they had to be jailed together. To be jailed together, they had to be sentenced at the same time. To be sentenced at the same time, they had to be tried at the same time. To be tried at the same time, they had to be arrested at the same time. By the time they got to the cross, they had a history with each other. And probably a history for some time back. So, again, why was Jesus crucified between two thieves? The two represent all mankind. They represent you and they represent me. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God And the Bible declares, again, in Romans, there is none righteous, no, not one. Jesus wasn't there to die for the righteous. He was our substitute. We are the thieves that were crucified next to him. Again, they were both imprisoned at the same time, which means they left prison together and walked the same road with Jesus. They traveled to Calvary together, and they were both crucified with Jesus. They were likely friends before becoming criminals. They probably began as partners, then petty thieves, then killers, later became robbers and murderers together. But here's the interesting thing. They both watched Jesus' reaction together. They both saw him brought into a cell. They were together, probably two cells next to each other, but they saw him brought in, and they saw him being treated the way he was. Matthew tells us when Jesus was brought into the cell that he was bound And they put a sack over his head, a cloth bag over his head and beat him in the face saying, if you're a prophet, prophesy who's hitting you. But as a sheep before her shears is dumb, he opened not his mouth. He never said a word. They beat him harder. He never said a word. He spoke to the king who came later. He spoke to some of the magistrates who came later and talked to them, but he would not talk whenever he was abused. He just kept his mouth shut. On the way to the cross, he had to carry his own cross and fell under the weight of it. But he never said a word. A man came and helped him carry his cross down the road. And when Jesus finally got to the place where the crucifixion was going to take place, they laid him on the cross and they put nails into his hands and nails into his feet. And he still, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, he opened not his mouth. He never cried, never screamed. History tells us when people were nailed to a cross, the screaming could be heard for miles. Jesus didn't scream. I'm sure the two thieves did when they were crucified on the cross, but Jesus never opened his mouth. Then the cross was lifted up and set in its place. And usually whenever the cross was set in its place and the body suddenly caught hold and came down as far as the nails would allow, they screamed even louder. But Jesus never screamed. And once the cross was in its place, Jesus finally opened up his mouth and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And so the things that were crucified him saw this whole thing. You know, what my thought has to be to think how bad we have been as criminals. We're in the cell and they bring Jesus in, they start beating him and beating him and beating him and they start mocking him. Then even while he's in the prison cell, they put a crown of thorns on his head. Then they start whipping him. They're probably over there thinking, man, I thought we did some bad stuff. What did this guy do? They don't know who he is. They might've heard about him. But the point of it is, think about this. They've never seen a miracle Jesus did. They were never part of the crowd. They probably got up in the morning, planned their day, read the newspaper and read about this guy that turned water into wine. They're probably thinking, boy, we think we have it. This guy has a plan. He's got a way to fool everybody. Next of all, he multiplied loaves and fishes. I bet he had a truck around the corner and all this stuff was being brought in. They probably figured out everything he could. He walked on water. He probably knew where all the rocks were. They're probably laughing about this guy. And when Jesus was arrested and brought in, they didn't know who he was until finally someone called him Jesus. They said, that's that guy we've read about man, all we heard about was the fact he probably pulled the wool over people's eyes, but man, we've never heard all this. Listen to what they're talking about. Listen to how they're beating him. And they probably begin to think, man, this guy, they must have really, because look how they're treating him. They don't usually treat a guy like that that's going to the cross. They just crucify him and leave him there for days until he finally dies. And Jesus was there being beaten in front of them. They saw him beaten. They saw him whipped. They saw him nailed, yet he never opened up his mouth. Both heard Jesus pray on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Both thieves heard him say that to those that were crucifying him. When crucified, they both spoke evil of Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 44, when the crowd was yelling out, if you're really the son of God, get off the cross and come down. And they started yelling the same thing too. It said the thieves who were crucified with him also reviled him. Both of them did. They probably never heard a sermon by Jesus. They probably never witnessed Jesus' miracles. Before their death, they didn't see the multitudes healed. They never saw water turned to wine, but because his fame spread everywhere, they had heard of his works and when they heard his name and saw it written above him and the crowd crying out, they knew exactly who he was. Next of all, they didn't see all the miracles after Jesus died. They didn't see the darkness that covered the earth for three hours or the earthquake that occurred. They didn't see the Old Testament saints come out of their graves and walk into Jerusalem. They didn't see the temple veil torn from the top to the bottom. They didn't see Jesus' resurrection and yet one of them accepted him. Without ever seeing a sign or a wonder, accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior. So before they were crucified, they might have done a few good things. At the crucifixion, it wasn't mentioned because it didn't matter. The works were not an issue. They were thieves. Their works weren't the issue. They were thieves. On the cross, they could do no good works to gain salvation. Their hands were nailed. They couldn't feed the hungry. They couldn't give money to the poor. Their feet were nailed. They couldn't go to church. They couldn't walk down an aisle. They couldn't go to an altar to receive Jesus. They couldn't visit the sick or those in prison. They were confined to a cross. They couldn't guarantee doing any good works after salvation. Why? They died without getting off the cross they had no great works to accompany or to approve their salvation, which comes back to one thing. There's a teaching out today called Lordship Salvation. And it simply says, unless you live for Jesus after you're born again, we don't know that you're born again, so you probably weren't born again. They didn't have time to live for Jesus. One of them said, I accept you. And because of that, Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. But apparently his dedication of the Lord was deep enough that he really meant it. And Jesus picked that up. I believe in living for Jesus. I believe once you're born again, you should live like it, look like it, act like it. But the point of it is, I don't know your heart if you really receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And one day I'll either see you in heaven or I won't. But in this particular case, this man didn't have time to live a life after he was born again, after he received Jesus. And again, Jesus knew he had received Jesus by salvation. Salvation is completely by God's grace. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the work of God. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the holy spirit eternal life has nothing to do with your good works before or after salvation it's strictly by receiving him i ask you a question if the thieves represent all of us why were there two why not just one if the thieves represent all of us why didn't we just have one because they represent the two answers to the gospel. One said yes, and one said no. I ask you a question, which thief are you? A yes thief or a no thief? Am I really a thief? Yes, you are, that's why they were thieves. I'm gonna ask you another question. If there were two thieves, why were they both men? I think that's prejudice. Don't you think that's prejudice? I think that's prejudicial. There were two men. Why not a man and a woman? That would more represent all of society because God knew what he was doing. If the woman would have accepted, all men would say, see, God does like women better. The women would say, see, he does like women better. But if the man would have accepted, the women would get mad. Think about this. We didn't have one black, one white, one Hispanic. We didn't have one Oriental. We didn't have one man, one woman. All the different things we have in life, all the different separations that we have, color, nationality, none of that. That's why God, I believe, put two exact men on the cross. I believe they were the same color, nationality. I believe they came from the same background. One was not more educated than the other. One was not richer than the other. They were both exactly the same to let us know God doesn't see us by color. God doesn't see us by nationality. God doesn't see us by gender. None of that matters to God. There's just one thing. What are you gonna do with Jesus Christ, period, over, out? That's the essence of the gospel, and that's why hanging next to Jesus, one said yes and one said no. Why were there two thieves again? Because the whole world is either a yes or a no thief. So we come down to the end of it, Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 tells us, so they are without excuse. Again, it comes back to it, which thief are you? Are you a yes thief or a no thief? Because that's all that really matters. In eternity, not God's not going to let you into heaven because you were a woman as opposed to a man. A man because, or a woman. A rich instead of poor. None of those things. Think about this. You can't go to heaven by something you couldn't help. You can only go to heaven by something you could help. And that's a decision for Jesus Christ. Is he Lord and Savior or is he not? You say, well, what do you mean by that? I ask you, all you women, did you choose to be a woman? Before you were born, did God come to you and say, take a choice. Man or woman? No. I ask you this. Before you were born, I mean, did God say, uh, choose the city you'd like to be born in. Choose the side of the city you'd like to be born Choose your socioeconomic background. These are the things we look at each other and get angry with each other because somehow think we're better than somebody else because of our background, our parents. Did you choose your parents? How many can vouch for it when you were teenagers, you probably want to swap parents with one of your friends, okay? All of us came through that. But the point of it is, is none of that matters. You may not have liked your parents as much as some other parents. You wish you'd have more money. You wish you'd born up in this girl. You wish you were born in that city instead of this city. My daughter said one time, She said, I wish I was born back in the 1940s. I just love the 1940s. I love the the music of the 40s, we came out of the war, America was really pulling together harder. She went on and I said, honey, you can't help it. You were born in the 70s, you didn't choose it because God predetermined the times and the boundaries of your habitation. Acts 17, predetermined. The point of it is get over your color, get over your nationality, get over all these petty things and realize one thing. Realize one thing: I'm here to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. One thief did. One thief did not. The two thieves represent you. Before today, you might have never gone to church. We had people hold up their hands that this is their first time in this church. We might have people that's never gone to church. You've never seen a miracle. You've never seen anybody. Or heard anybody preach the gospel and today you're getting the gospel for the first time you may or may not live long enough after this service to have an opportunity to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior but you're hearing it right now I'm here to let you know That with all the things you haven't seen, you're not somehow less special than somebody who has seen all these things because Jesus died for everybody and it happened to be two thieves. If you haven't accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, God goes past color, God goes past gender and looks at one thing, you're a no thief. But he wants you to be a yes thief. And you still have an opportunity here in this life to say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ and this man did. I love what Jesus said to him at the very end. He said today you'll be with me in where paradise think about that paradise can you imagine the outrage that would be in our country if a criminal i mean a murderer who had been a murderer for years part of criminal organizations probably has dead bodies under foundations of buildings across the country probably threw bodies into oceans with cement attached to their feet, evil, evil person. We don't know how many that that person killed. We don't know how many murders occurred with this person, but finally he's caught, finally goes to court and finally is sentenced. And at the end of his sentence, he stands in front of a judge and the judge says to him, I understand you're repentant for what you've done. Yes, I am. Well, let me tell you what your charge is gonna be. You have to live forever in a condo on Maui for the rest of your life. You talk about outrage. You'd hear it from one end of this country to another. Jesus screamed it out from the cross. You're gonna be with me in paradise. I'm here to let you know your background, whatever you've done wrong does not help, is not held against you. The moment you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're going to end up in a condo in heaven, a mansion in heaven forever and forever and forever, not based at all on how you live, not based at all on a criminal background, but based on one thing, you were a yes thief. You said yes to Jesus Christ. Oh, the grace of God. Oh, the mercy of God. Hallelujah. I'm so glad I've accepted him. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? There's one verse of scripture we almost, almost every Christian knows of by heart. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, thieves, murderers, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The first word out of that criminal's mouth to Jesus was Lord he accepted him as the Lord of his life Lord remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus said I'll do more than remember you you have a place prepared in eternity called paradise tonight or this morning if you've never accepted Jesus as the Lord of your life you are powerless to do it yourself Your hands can't help you. Your feet can't help you. But only one can. His name is Jesus. And all it takes is one simple cry to him. Lord, I give my life to you. And in so doing, you'll get to go to heaven. Celebrate forever in a mansion there. Would you hold up your hand and say, Pastor, this morning I want to receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior. By hold your hand up high where I can see it. Just hold it up. There's a hand there. Someone else. Someone else. Do we have anyone that works with the, that can pray with these people? Or do you need to do it? Do we have have some workers? They can pray with them? Are you going to do it yourself or what? The man right back here that raised up your hand. Anybody else want to join him? There's a hand right here. You want to come and pray? Yeah, you can come. Yeah, you want to come down here and pray for him? How about just go back over there and pray for him right back there. He's in a wheelchair. Just pray for him. Anyone else? Hold your hand up high. Pastor Bob, I want to receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life. I realize today my education doesn't help. My money doesn't help. All these things don't help. The only thing I can do is what everyone can do. Except Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life, anyone. Hallelujah. Well, I can tell you this, angels are rejoicing in heaven over this man right back here, that's receiving Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, amen. Father, we bless your name. Thank you today for the simple gift of eternal life. Jesus came to this earth for one reason, he came to die and give his life a ransom for many. Father, I'm so glad I'm one of those many that have accepted him as Lord and Savior. So, Father, I have the best in life, but I also have the best in eternity. Father, I praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor.